For the week of September 15th, 2017, this is Think Outside the Beltway. Hello, everybody. On the show this week, we talk about Trump, DACA, and the Democrats, and we talk about Hillary Clinton's book tour. I am Stephen Cox, founder of the Facebook group My Liberal Pals and host of the Washington State Indivisible podcast. With me, as always, are Chad Levinson. He is the Stanley Kaplan Visiting Postdoctoral Fellow in Political Science and Leadership Studies at William College, and he is our resident political scientist. Hello, Chad. Hello, everyone. And David Gershwin, Democratic strategist and former chief of staff to L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti. He is our resident political strategist. Hello, David. Hello, guys. Always good to be here. I I would like to open by saying that uh, pharma bro Martin Shkreli is in jail. There's no punchline. I, I just like saying the words. Martin Shkreli is in jail. And he's in jail for being an asshole. Yeah, well, like, as he should have been. That's why he's in jail is because uh, he's an asshole. Yeah. I, also, I, I, Ted Cruz liked a porn site on Twitter. Those are, those are fun words to say, too, out loud, I, I found. Anyway, um, th- that's, a, that's a really rough transition. But, David, you actually mentioned in the pre-show that, uh, that your daughter actually recently wrote a letter to Trump, which I thought was she did. wonderful. Yes, yeah, it, it happens to be my daughter's birthday today, so uh, you know, shout out to her for Happy that. Birthday, Alex. And, it, and and she and, and and when she was she was born in 2008, just about a month and a half before uh, the election, and the fact that she grew up with President Obama is is just a wonderful thing for her to have that political foundation of knowing that that is who a president could be. Yeah. So in her letter to. Uh, Donald Trump, who who she calls Trump. She called President Obama President Obama, but he's just Trump. She said, "Dear Trump, uh, I I really didn't like what you said about the wall." And and she and she drew a, a footnote, like a like a visual footnote, and said, "P.S. That was rude." And uh, it certainly is. So it, from from the mouths of babes come good political perspectives. Very very meant. nice. Well, happy birthday, Alexandra Gershwin. We wish you all the best and many many happy returns. Right. So in about in about nine years, the cohort that's that's your your daughter's age is going to spell real trouble for the Republican Party. Let's hope. Yeah, here's hoping, Agreed. right? Yeah, whatever her generation is going to be called. All right, guys. So uh, this week in Trump, uh, what happened? So um, after a Sunday appearance on 60 Minutes by Steve Bannon, who was wearing a layer of pancake makeup so thick that it could only be described in inches, uh, said, uh, among other things, that firing James Comey was the biggest mistake in modern political history. And he promised a civil war with the GOP over the Dreamers. Oh, and he said the GOP establishment never wanted to enact his white nationalist agenda. You don't say, Steve. Uh, By the way, can I I just give you guys a quick impression of Charlie Rose's interviewing style? So, uh, David, I'm just going to ask you a, a harmless question. Just answer it. So, David, do you like being a Democratic strategist? I enjoy it every minute. So let me just get this straight. You like being a strategist. Do I have that right? Absolutely. You are saying you like being a Democratic strategist for the Democratic Party. I mean, not for the party specifically, but I'm, I who happens. Ah, he got ah, you to change your answer. Well, ah. okay. You know, I was actually effective. I was I was going to castigate uh, Charlie Rose there, but uh, maybe we've just sort of proved his style. Anyway, on Wednesday evening, as we now know, Trump took a meeting over Chinese food. Apparently, it was crispy, sweet, crispy beef that Trump ordered, a dish I've never heard of. Uh, He ate with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi in the White House, and during which meeting, he, again, essentially gave them exactly what they wanted, which was a deal on DACA without giving him any funding for his fucking border wall. Because Trump's a deal maker, you guys. He fires people and he makes deals, only he uh, he actually doesn't do either. Uh, Trump 2020, there's your slogan, MAGA. Oh, and boy, howdy, speaking of MAGA, did his base just go batshit. Breitbart called him Amnesty Don. Iowa Congressman and Burning Cross in human form Steve King tweeted, Trump's base is blown up, destroyed, irreparable, and disillusioned beyond repair. No promise is credible, which is kind of hilarious that he's just realizing that last part now. And, And I never 
try to quote or talk about Ann Coulter because I firmly believe that attention is her oxygen and I am fervently committed to starving her of it. But she tweeted out that at this point, who doesn't want Trump impeached? Hey, wow. Also, Sean Hannity almost almost criticized Trump. He came really close. So uh, we'll get to all that. One other notable thing that I wanted to mention, actually, and this is down your way, David, on Thursday, the California State Assembly passed a bill requiring that all presidential candidates provide tax returns in order to qualify for the ballot there. This is something that New York has also introduced, and there is an initiative here in Washington State that is gathering signatures. Um, Obviously, as we saw in 2016, a candidate can win without taking California, New York, or Washington. But I think it's worth stopping to explore for a moment. David, two questions. First, do you get the sense that this bill is going to pass the Senate? And if it does, is it is it going to make any substantive difference? Well, the, I think what it has to be linked with if California has the ability to move its primary up to March or even earlier, immediately after the New Hampshire primary and Iowa caucuses, because as it stands now, California's primary for the major party nominations is pretty much an afterthought um, right. because it's, it's come so late in the game. So if, if you if you make it a litmus test for all candidates, and clearly this was aimed at Republican candidates and clearly aimed at Trump running for re-election himself. That's, I don't of course. think that's any, any secret at all. Um, that can become an, an interesting factor, and it, and it could conceivably force the issue. But um, I, I don't I don't know if it holds water. I certainly the, the Republican opposition in the California legislature was uh, nearly complete. Um, so it, you know there's there's certainly those overtones. But at the same time, um, it's a it's a it's a good reminder that you know just based on the fact that one eighth of the country lives in California, California can be a political force if the stars align properties properly so this is this is one of the constellations that is that is part of that configuration all right well we'll keep an eye on that as it develops uh but uh, let's start this week off by talking about the daca deal that trump uh, apparently struck with chuck and nancy which because this is trump it's it's really only worth the paper it's printed on until something actually becomes law but According to a joint statement from Schumer and Pelosi, quote, we agreed that the president would support enshrining DACA protections into law and encourage the House and Senate to act. What remains to be negotiated are the details of border security. While both sides agree that the wall would not be any any part of this agreement, the president made clear that he intends to pursue it at a later time. And we made clear that we would continue to oppose it. Boom. Then Trump, in a tweet storm on Thursday morning, said, quote, no deal was made last night on DACA. Massive border security would have to be agreed on in exchange for consent would be subject to vote. The wall, which is already under construction in the form of new renovation of old and existing fences and walls. I just have to stop and laugh for a second. It's like that's how he's pitched every construction project ever. Uh, Anyway, the wall will continue to be built. But then and here's the rub. Quote, does anybody really want to throw out good, educated and accomplished young people who have jobs, some serving in the military? Really? Exclamation point. They have been in our country for many years through no fault of their own, brought in by parents at young age, plus big border security. So in true Trump fashion, there's a lot of mixed messages there. So let's start here. Do we think that Trump actually follows through on this DACA deal with the Democrats? Or I guess more to the point, Chad, what incentive does he have to follow through on this? He has incentive because, well, in, I think, three ways. One is he's still dissatisfied with the leadership in the Congress by Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. So this is a further way to sort of uh, reduce their influence and show, rather to show how little influence they have. 
uh, or how little power they have. The second is, you know, he might not want to deal with the difficulty and political consequences of now having, uh, you know, a Justice Department and and DHS deporting, you know, seven, eight hundred thousand people uh, who have a lot of connections to the community. And third, he might just. Um, he might want to get something done after all. <laughs> well, okay. So, I- and, and also, let's let's think about it. He could also brag then about how. Um, he's managed to do something that Obama uh, failed to do for eight years. Well, I suppose so, although that's something that is is really going to burn his uh, base even further, and that's something that I want to kind of talk about a little bit later on. But something that was very striking— We should should note that there are disincentives for followers as well that that might be equally powerful. One of the things very striking about that tweet storm, uh, not least of which was all the weird non-sequiturs, was the fact that he seems to be trying to link economics and security in that tweet storm. Uh, David, what do you make of that? Well, I think that's absolutely true. And unfortunately, that's uh, that's an aspect that has been taking place pretty much since the Reagan administration. And uh, there is a professor out of the University of, of Denver, Professor uh, Cesar Hernandez, which has maintained that, you know, this is this is something where the, the criminal justice system and the immigration system have been linked. And, you know, we're, we're trying to talk about, you know, so-called good immigrants and so-called bad immigrants. And that just, you know, makes for not not a very good policy discussion in that you know you it's a it's a slippery slope people are you know he he goes on to say that people are not easy to characterize we're we're a mix of good and bad but they don't really belong together and if you if you really want to make an argument you could say that the, the dreamers who are here make such incredibly strong economic contributions to our country mm-hmm. that would have we talked about this last week would have economic consequences it would cost 60 billion dollars to deport all of them and the foreign minister of mexico in an interview with the los angeles times this week maintained well while while ending daca would would certainly be be bad on its face he he acknowledged that it might be somewhat welcome in uh you know mexican uh, leadership yeah, our loss mexican is mexico's leadership. gain right just to see to see that look, why don't why don't we see about you know getting getting back some of those residents who have acquired, you know, intellectual and educational capital and economic capital and having them back here in Mexico. So he I, he, he mentioned that almost as an aside. But at the same time, I think he points out the economic value that dreamers have in the United States. And it needs to be acknowledged. That makes an enormous argument for immigration right there, as far as I'm concerned, because part of the reason why our country has maintained its intellectual prowess over all these years is because people from all over the world come and bring their intellectual capital to this country and and we benefit from it. And so I think that's something, as far as I'm concerned, those are alarm bells that we should absolutely be listening to. Um, you have to be a little careful with that because recall the immigration standards that the Trump administration has sent includes, a, you know, this point system, right? And part of the point system is saying, like, if you come here with an advanced degree, then you get this many points. So we, we want to be careful to sort of that we that we don't lose our humanity in well, simply counting these immigrants as you know But economics is actually one of the only ways Republicans will actually understand. If this is something that Republicans can swallow, um, it's not going to be a humanitarian aspect because they don't give a shit about that. But something I want to ask you, Chad, if the deal goes through, there are ways that this really might hurt the Republican leadership. Can you talk about that a little bit? The the Republican leadership can definitely be, be hurt in that 
I mean, first of all, they're being bypassed. Um, and you know, the, the sort of nightmare scenario actually has to do with some fairly, not particularly arcane, but slightly arcane sort of procedures of the, the Senate and the House. And I'm talking about the possibility that this is going to be brought to the floor by discharge petition. And a discharge petition happens when a bill is referred into a committee for review and, and markup by the committee, and it stays there for 30 days, and it doesn't get re- um, reintroduced onto the whole chamber because the leadership doesn't want it to. Okay. And so this is how the leadership exerts power by keeping things off of the agenda. Now, if a majority of the chamber says, takes a vote on a discharge petition and says, let's bring this back out of committee and have a vote on it, they don't need the leadership's okay to do that. And that would probably be the worst case scenario for the leadership to show how little power they actually have or how little ability they have to wield the power that they possess. So I think that's probably the worst case scenario for them. First of all, they they get they're just they're, they're looped out. So Trump is really uh, diminishing their power by leaps and bounds here. And I guess that leads me to what is really the juiciest question of all, which is why Trump is still making deals with the Democrats. That might be one answer. But I thought for fun, we would make this a multiple choice. So uh, a Trump is continuing to make deals with the Democrats because a he sees making deals with Schumer and Pelosi as giving him more le- leverage with McConnell and Ryan. B, because being accepted by the Democratic New York establishment is actually something that Trump has wanted his entire life and now he's getting it. C, because, as some are claiming, Trump is actually an independent. And D, because he's an unpredictable, mentally unstable liability of a president. Uh, So let's go one by one here. So Glenn Thrush of The New York Times said uh, on The Daily podcast this morning, uh, which is a great podcast, by the way, I I highly recommend. um, He said that he believes that this is actually good politics on the part of Trump because now he's got new bargaining partners in Chuck and Nancy uh, who he can use in leverage against Ryan and McConnell to get them to do what he wants. Do you buy into that, Chad? I buy into that insofar as there is uh, a list of remaining issues on which he sees eye to eye with Chuck and Nancy, right? So he can't credibly offer them as bargaining partners if, you know, on something like the wall, on something like um, on something like the travel ban, right, that they are against and their constituents are against. Um, so, yes, but it has a very limited utility insofar as they don't agree on policy very often. Well, David, what, setting aside the speculation on whether or not Trump is actually getting what he's wanted all along, which is being accepted by New York Democrats, I, I'm wondering how much of this is Schumer being a smart politician. Chuck Schumer has a relationship with Trump that predates Trump's presidency. And unlike Trump, Chuck Schumer is a deal maker. And unlike Trump, he actually is a skilled politician. How much of this in your mind can be credited to Schumer's political skill? I think, you know, Schumer has no shortage of political skill. And I think he saw an opportunity and drove a truck right through it. I mean, I think he saw uh, Trump's personal shortcomings. He saw Trump's uh, need to be loved. And I think he, he saw Trump's vulnerability, vulnerability, blah, blah, blah. 
And I think he also saw Trump's vulnerability in this regard. And you can really see palpably when when Trump talks about dreamers, he softens up mm-hmm. more so than I've seen on almost any other topic. And so I'm sure that was not lost on on Schumer or Pelosi, for that matter. And, uh, you know, in, in order to achieve something that, you know, ironically could not be achieved uh, while President Obama was in office, this is this is a possibly a, a way to get the discussion moving in the right direction so that we may ultimately see a legislative package that, you know, solves this incredibly maybe not perfectly solves, but addresses this incredibly difficult and divisive issue. So let's get to what I think is the chewiest question of all, uh, and that is the question of independence. Uh, Some pundits are saying that this is all a sign of Trump's being an independent. And I I think by that, they mean it to say that he is unpredictable. And yeah, no shit. But uh, I'm wondering if either of you would classify Trump as an independent politically. He's not a traditional Republican. He didn't run as one. As I said, he was a New York Democrat for most of his life. He's been governing as a white nationalist. Does any of that classify him as an independent politically, Chad? So I just, my classes started a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things we did is, is recommend or actually demand that they get a subscription to the New York Times and read it. And like, I felt like I've never picked a worse week to recommend to students (laughs) to start reading the New York Times when I saw this absolutely ridiculous Mm -hmm. assertion that Trump is governing as an independent, that he has upset the two-party system that's been in place for 150 years. It's absurd. He didn't run as an independent. He ran for the the Republican nomination. He ran on a combination of low, uh, on a platform that combined lowering taxes with restricting immigration. This has been the Republican platform for a long time. He did it with a style that we haven't seen before, but the substance is not all that different. He started out, sure, as a human being, being soft on, so say, marriage equality. And the more he ran, the harder his stance got on things like, on things like gender and, and sexuality. He is a Republican. He is a Republican, however, that does not know how to govern, and he's having trouble with his supposed allies in Congress, and he is lashing out against them. Now, the reason that we haven't been able to legislate this in the past, by the way, is because the leadership was keeping the caucus together by preventing the right flank from breaking off because they're the hard, they have the hardest line on immigration. Right. And, and I'll get to he that is going second. to lose them, right? He is going to lose them. That's what's happening. We are seeing the breakup of the Republican Party that by no means implies that the president is an independent, governs as one, or ran as one. All right, so, so put a pin in that, because I, I do want to talk about the, the Republican question in a second. And also, uh, may I recommend the Washington Post uh, instead of the New York Times? Uh, David, let's get you to sound off. Uh, h- how does all that sit with you, Trump being a political independent? Look, look, if, if, if he walks like a Republican and talks like a Republican and tweets like a Republican, he's a Republican. And he... I agree that he espouses the values that have been long held by the Republican Party. And to say that he's a true independent and not just someone who has the backbone of a of a ball of Play-Doh, I, I think just loses <laughs> sight of who he actually is. He's expedient. He's he may be icon. People are conflating independence with iconoclasm. And I don't think that. In any way, he is going to relinquish the mantle of conservative value politics that he espouses throughout. He's espoused throughout his 
career even before he ever was a candidate for office, dating back to his days as a New York uh, New York real estate uh, baron. I don't like even using that word, but New York uh, as, as a businessman in New York. I mean, back to go back when he was taking out racially polarizing ads about the Central Park Five. Sure. I mean, he's he he has well, much he banned more black common. people from his properties. I mean, it's like on and on and right, on. Yeah. Right, right, right. So so but so he does not he does not reflect true independence in any way, shape, or form. And, and I, I agree that it's it's irresponsible to call him an independent. The two-party system, as, as beleaguered as it may be, is alive and well. There's no, there's no third party. He's not he's no Teddy Roosevelt. An iconoclast and not an independent. I say uh, pen a letter to the, uh, the New York Times uh, editorial page, David. Get on it. Uh, so as I talked about in the intro, Trump's base is furious because uh, he's essentially given away the two things that he promised them, which was A, to be the wall and be to rescind DACA. Uh, I actually just saw footage on Vice.com before we started of supporters burning their MAGA hats. So in my mind, this could go either way. On one hand, you can see him kind of doing the right thing and them welcoming him back into the fold if he just throws him a little red meat because, well, I mean, I think they've proven time and again that they're really fucking easy to manipulate. But uh, you suspect that another transgender type ban thing is not going to do the trick. I I think it would have to be something on race, which, depending on how the DACA deal goes, could be very tricky. I am jumping several steps ahead here because we don't know what is going to happen. But what does it mean for Trump if his base abandons him? Um, What does that mean for him politically? Does that, I mean, he's, he's sort of barely scrapping together a plan for governing as it is right now, Chad, if he loses his base, what does that mean? If he loses his base, then his, his next card is, is to get tax reform passed. I don't think he has the cards to play or the knowledge of how to play them to get that done. I'm not, at least not with any great certainty. And unfortunately, I think this, you know, we sort of you throw around this, these terms like 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 red meat for his base. He has a tremendous amount of power to do exactly that, and this has. I mean, he has the largest military in the world. He has just opened up police departments for using military equipment. His um, the one thing he continues to agree with Jeff Sessions about um, is the issue of say Black Lives Matter. To put it in sort of a concise way. And he has shown that he is willing to grant immunity to people like Sheriff Arpaio or Pio, however you pronounce it, I can't remember. Um, and that has a tremendous emboldening effect on, on, on you know, people in, you know, sort of the worst of law enforcement, the worst of border border control. And, and there, there's a lot of bad things he can still do. And I think, and I fear, this will give him the incentive to do so. Yeah, David. Well. You know, look, he may not have a whole – I don't know if he has a whole lot of red meat to throw around and toss to his base, but he certainly has plenty of white meat to toss to his base. <laughs> and I think part part of that is the fact that he can – he's still talking about the fucking wall, and that's still part and parcel. We talked about the linkage, the, the, the unfair linkage between criminal justice policy and immigration and economic policy. He's still considering that a zero-sum game, and I think somehow he hopes that dangling that carrot in front of his base is going to make up for any uh, you know perceived flip on on his promises regarding, uh, regarding DACA. So I'd I don't know what else he has in his arsenal to to 
in addition to that that would be that that would bring I think Congress is the are the folks that he's alienated the most his his actual supporters in the voting public I think are not looking at such at his policies at such a granular level like they're almost happier to see him buck the system and and at times be perceived to be a voice for the voiceless. I, I don't believe that he is, but they may see him as such. That holds more weight with him than a lot of the specifics that we happen to be discussing, a lot of the more substantive issues where he could indeed um, throw out actual red meat that, that is that that would you know send this country on a downward trajectory. Yeah. Um, but but his his power is much more diminished legislatively than it is popularly, even though he's you know facing all time uh, all-time popularity lows in in polling. Um, I don't think he's the 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 deplorables, as it were, have nowhere else to go. So he's, well, he, they're still going to have to they're still going to have to swallow what he stands for and and where he is right now. And there it is. Okay, so then then we get back to the deplorables, and I think the very central issue here is the issue of race. And I, I feel like this potentially has uh, the possibility of really fracturing the GOP in a big way. And we you know, we've touched on this uh, several times, specifically a couple of weeks ago um, when we talked about the issue of the Latino vote. I mean, the, the, the realists, the economic conservatives, the establishment, for want of a better term, they recognize that they need to stop alienating Latinos, the GOP, um, because Latinos will be the majority in a few states soon um, in order for the GOP to hang on to power. On the other hand, their white nationalist base, the Steve Kings, the, the Breitbart contingent, as David just mentioned, the deplorables, the Pepe the Frogs, absolutely see race as central to their politics, and they will not budge on it. So the healthcare split broke on economic lines, but the race issue seems like it is a much bigger problem for the Republicans. Chad, if, if Trump keeps poking the issue of race, and it seems like he's going to, what potentially happens? Does this fracture the party, or maybe irreparably? Yeah, and and this fracture is going to be on exactly the 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 sort of seam. Well, now there's a mixed metaphor. Uh, mm-hmm. The seam, the the tear in the fabric, the tear in the garment is right along the seam that was knitted together uh, by, well, somewhere between Nixon and Reagan. Now, for those who who want a little bit of a history lesson, yeah, you mentioned this one. in the pre-show, and I think this is important. So, in in 1980, Ronald Reagan, you know, the sort of you know, benign uncle of American politics. Um, just after he got the nomination, the first campaign stop he made was in a place called Philadelphia, Mississippi. Now, for those of you who don't know where this is, if you've seen the movie Mississippi Burning, it is basically set near you know Philadelphia, Mississippi. This is where the Freedom Summer murders occurred. Uh, that's uh, um, Cheney, Goodman, and and Schwerner uh, were were killed for uh, for registering. African-Americans for the vote and supporting their cause. So he went down to Philadelphia, Mississippi, to the Neshoba County Fair, and he gave a speech in which he said, you know, I believe in states' rights. And that was a huge dog whistle, right? right? And he said, uh, I need to, you know, he wants to restore to states and local governments the power that properly belongs to them. And this is, in no uncertain terms, a reference to the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Right. And basically to say, I, I will support helping you work around those things. Now, think about this. The murderers, the Freedom Summer murderers, were never charged, were never caught, were never interviewed, were never prosecuted, nothing. They were probably there in the audience. It's a sobering thought. And there's Reagan saying, 
you've got a free pass. This is the kind of emboldenment I'm talking about. But notice that he never came out and said anything like that. He used covert dog whistle messaging to knit together this coalition of sort of economic conservatives, low-tax, pro-business conservatives with white supremacists, right, that had been left, that had been jettisoned uh, from the, the, the Democratic Party in the 60s. And then we fast forward to Trump, who's doing it overtly, right? right? And, yeah, exactly. And we've said this on the show before. Now, Trump comes along and makes that message explicit and overt. And the, the, the sort of low-tax, pro-business conservatives are now going to have to contend with that. They're going to have to account for it. And and the numbers are not favorable. I mean, if, if the Republican Party continues on this trajectory and the demographic face of the United States keeps changing, and it will certainly like it is exponentially so in California, um, as as our former governor uh, and movie star, I guess current movie star Arnold Schwarzenegger said in a in a speech about ten years ago, he said our party has lost the middle and we will not regain true political power in California until we get it back. In movie terms, we are dying at the box office. <laughs> we are not filling the seats and that you are is, an and la boy back, listen to you and that goes back that goes back to the the fact that you know at the end of the day it's all a numbers game and if so if the republican party it, you can you can pretty much say that you know the 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 endangered species that is a moderate republican um if they don't have a seat at the table um the future of the republican party nationally is going to be jeopardized i mean if you're just going to bankroll your entire party's ideology on fringe elements and what were once considered, I guess that I will still consider them far right elements, but when extreme becomes not extreme within your own party, you're in trouble uh, in the long term. You, you may have those short term gains. You may have those short term victories. And unfortunately, we may have so seen one of those short term victories in uh, November. But if you want long term viability, this is not the pathway forward for you. Well, then let's talk. Let's finish up this segment by talking about the Democrats in all of this. Um, I, they have recently uh, begun to push single-payer legislation that Bernie Sanders and a number of other prominent Democrats uh, – actually, I should say, and a number of prominent Democrats uh, are pushing because Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat. Uh, and I don't want to get into the details of it because that's a whole different show. But um, I, I'm sort of wondering how we look at this. I think there are two ways to view it. One is that the base is empowered – right now because Chuck and Nancy are technically winning. So now is the time to push the big stuff. Or two, the base is pissed that Chuck and Nancy are working with uh, who the base sees as the enemy and are pushing to return the base to their core principles by introducing something like single payer right now. Uh, David, how do you see it? Well, first of all, I mean, the, the thing that gets my goat uh, more than anything else is that I think what most people want when they hear the term single payer, I think what would be a better uh, term of art would be universal coverage. I think that is ultimately what people want. When single payer would effectively eliminate the insurance industry, which, you know, like it or not, and I, there's plenty of times I don't like the insurance industry on a personal level, believe me, um, you know, they are part and parcel of the American economy. So that's, that's that doing oh. away with the insurance it would be a heavy lift and, and yeah. to pay for single payer. That aside, um, I strongly believe that single payer has become the new litmus test for Democrats. And I think it's a good, healthy conversation among Democrats to have 
to have this type of policy objective in mind. And it's something that we can do for people instead of the politics of division and hate. In the oh, absolutely. But I mean, in, in terms but of back the, to, uh, back to the original question, yeah. yes, I think I think to somehow fault to fault Democrats for cutting deals with a deer in the headlights president who doesn't know shit from Shinola is ridiculous. It doesn't see the forest for the trees. If you can't screw over a, a, a strongly diminished president, who the hell can you screw over? And if it means if it, if it, if that is if that instead of single payer, if that is your litmus test, I think you're you have your priorities completely back asserted. So no, I, I think it would be a tremendous disservice to our own party if there are folks within the Democratic Party who somehow fault Democrats for a you know would be abandonment of principle for for making life better for dreamers. I agree with that, but I, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second because play devil's advocate. Okay, so if Schumer and Pelosi's strategy really begins to take off, and let's say that there's a new paradigm, and they they really are working alongside Trump on more and more deals, things like infrastructure, and even uh, because it's coming up tax reform. Is there a chance that this could backfire, that the Democrats will then own, they'll, they'll, have, they'll share ownership of some of Trump's policies? Um, for, like, for example, and that just takes us all the way back to the very beginning, uh, a lot of the Democratic base don't want more money toward border security. But I think Chuck and Nancy are looking to give that to Trump in order to get the DACA deal through. Chad, do you see there being a potential downside to all this? I mean, if, 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 you, if you think you're going to get 100% of what you want without giving away anything— Well, that ain't politics. Right. Especially not politics when you hold neither the presidency nor the Senate nor the House. Um, so if you can get anything out of this president, you take it, especially if it means helping out about 800,000 people who deserve and need our help. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I also just—I don't believe in litmus tests. You know, a litmus test, if you just understand— Remember what a litmus test actually is? It is a very crude way to tell if something's an acid or a base. Right. I mean, what the hell does that what the hell does that do us in politics? Well, well, but, I mean, just but because just because you just because you might favor something like, uh, you know, Obamacare over, you know, Medicare for all doesn't mean you're the political equivalent of hydrochloric acid. But lit- litmus tests have been historically a, a good thing within the term. It was a, whether or not you're pro death penalty, whether or not you're pro gay marriage. I mean, those those have now moved on and I think moved us in a better direction as a I don't party think and as a tests, country. I don't think litmus tests had anything to do with with the, the legalization of marriage equality. And I don't think we've achieved anything on the death penalty. But those So I don't been, think it's done us any good. Right. It, it's not responsible for the good that's been done. And it hasn't achieved and 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 the other on, on one policy. On the other policy we haven't succeeded. Well, we're going to put a pin in this because this conversation is becoming acidic. There, I just dipped a, I dipped my little strip of paper in there. I think it turned. Does it turn blue or pink? I forget. Anyway, that's all. yellow. Yeah, exa- oh, is it yellow? Okay. It starts off yellow. It turns pink if it's acid. Blue if it's base. Oh, good uh-huh. man. Leave it to the academic to remember. All right, you guys. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Do you need a website? If you are an author, a musician, a small business person, or basically a person in life, I'm just going to answer this question for you. Yes, you need a website. Go over to thebestexamplesite.com where I have prepared a video showing you how to set up your very own website in six minutes for 12 bucks. Go check it out because you definitely do need a website. Also, how many times can I say the word website? And we are back. I am Stephen Cox. They are Chad Levinson and David Gershwin. And we will end this week by talking briefly about Hillary Clinton um, and her book tour. Uh, I will begin this segment by saying that I have not read Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened. Uh, David, I believe you bought it. How, how far along are you? 
I've I've only just begun. You've but, only uh, just got, begun. Got through the preface right. and the and the first chapter, and I, I'm certainly enjoying it, and it's refreshing. All right, in the words of Karen Carpenter. Uh, so I have not, although I have read excerpts, uh, but what I have done is consume a lot of her media tour, and so that's the thing I'd like to discuss largely. Um, so while I understand that the book reads differently on her book tour, Clinton has done a great deal of finger pointing as to why she lost the election. Some of the key reasons are as follows in no particular order. Bernie fucked her over. James Comey fucked her over. Vladimir Putin fucked her over. The mainstream media fucked her over. Misogyny was a huge factor. And not uh, least, communicating a message of continuation and stay the course versus radical change is very, very hard, especially following a two-term president and especially when up against two opponents, uh, both of whom were pushing very hard for change. So there does seem to be a lot of score settling going on here. Um, To be fair, she does take pains to say that the buck stops with her and that her decisions were her responsibility. But there's, there's definitely a lot of calling people out. David, so since you have begun reading the book, how much does the tone of the book differ from what she has been talking about on her book tour, particularly uh, concerning the points that I just listed? Well, I mean, I think the the tone of the book that that I am gleaning so far is that, you know, when when she was on the campaign trail and, and certainly when she was a senator and secretary of state and, and even for that matter, first lady, there was all there, there was definitely the the perception and the reality that that everything she said was incredibly guarded, and you could you could make the argument that she, like many other politicians, she is not the u- most unique person in this regard. Uh, everything was scripted, everything mm. was pulled, everything was focus grouped. That and that she, you know, out of an abundance of caution, not wanting to have her words twisted one way or another. Um, some parts of the book that I've read so far are refreshingly candid. You feel like that the the edits have come. Off. You feel like she's she's just much more comfortable in her own skin, and and, and God bless her for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of of what I think the the strength of the book, the finger pointing is is I think it was inevitable. She, she it's her it's her story to tell. I think she has a right to tell where she was coming from. For me, that is the least compelling aspect of what she's trying to say, and and the most compelling component that she's articulated so far is that you know, Bernie Sanders, be him as it may. I and mean, there was, there was the whole analogy over, you know, how much is the pony like, here have a unicorn, I believe in terms of <laughs> policies that policy ideas that were thought up that, well, how do you execute it? She felt, and she articulates that she had a reticence on her part of moving forward with policies and ideas that weren't fully hatched. I mean, if there was not a viable way to pay for something, she wasn't ready to put it forth. Whereas now she acknowledges that, you know, a vast uh, difference uh, in the in the political climate and the media climate between now and certainly the, you know the campaigns of the 70s and 80s and 90s and even that of 2008. Whereas when whereas these days you she might have been better off articulating a would be you know idealistic pie in the sky type of idea and hashing out the details later. And in some ways, I think that that was sort of a tip of the hat to Bernie Sanders in terms of there's, there's a, there's a, benefit in being aspirational. There's a benefit in being hopeful. And even if it doesn't quite pencil out, say that that's something you want to strive for and work out the details later. That seems to be her biggest regret. And I think that was, that was probably so far in, in what I've read and what I've seen on her, on her book tour. That's the most compelling 
piece that that hits me so far. Well, yeah. So I mean, I was I was actually you kind of answered my next question, which was going to be you know the, given the fact that you know she won the popular vote but lost, and setting that aside is a very hard thing for her to do. It's a hard thing for me to do, and for America to do, and for the world to do. The, she shares that fate with uh, four or five other presidential candidates in history, and yeah, including the, Al Gore. So that's this not, one you, was a particularly <laughs> hard one, I think, for everybody to yeah. swallow, given the who we wound up with. But she, she knew she knew the ground rules going in. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, it stinks. It stinks. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Well, so, Chad, all, <laughs> since since you you haven't read it and you really haven't been following uh, the the press, I'll just ask you this: it, She says that she is not running for office again, but she is not going away. Uh, the Democrats don't really have a strong figurehead leader right now. Do you think she's a viable voice of leadership for the Democrats right now? Um, not really. No, I don't. I mean, not not as a political organizer, not as a party leader. But I also don't think it's appropriate for a party to rely on one person unless that person is sitting in the White House um, as, as leader, uh, to rely on, on one person as leader. I just I, I think it's a mistaken idea of the way parties are the way parties operate in U.S. politics. Um, you know, they they don't need to craft a message of leadership right now because they're, they're, they're not going to have a chance of putting it into place for a while. It's good to practice. It's good to put, talk about <laughs> ideas. It's good to, it's, it's also you good make to it sound like a JV ideas. team, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's also, it's a, it's a good time to work on policy ideas that might actually have a chance at making people's lives better. Hmm. You know, policy is hard. As Trump has found out, David, um, a, a number of Democrats are actually very vocally upset about Hillary going out right now and essentially airing dirty laundry, saying that she picked the worst possible time to have a book tour. Do you agree with that? I mean, yeah, this opens up old wounds for Democrats, but I mean, would people prefer that it was closer to 2018 when those wounds could be aired in a more damaging way? What what, what do you make of her timing? I mean, for fuck's sake, I mean, here's a, here's a woman who's given her life to public service and endured one of the most humiliating losses in political history. Yeah. And if she can't put out a flipping autobiography, what is the hell she's supposed to do? So agreed. I mean, there, there may be, there may be Sometimes maybe closer to a midterm election that might have been horrible timing, but I think now is as good a time as ever. And and for her for for folks to second guess her, I think is I think is absolutely ludicrous. Well, Chad, we will end this week with you. Uh, and uh, I, I guess, uh, given the fact that you've studied the post data election, I'd like to get your reaction to what Hillary has asserted, at least on her media tour, and how that squares with the data. Um, and I, you've always said that there's a narrowing when you get closer to an election, and that's natural. And that Clinton's numbers were. We're starting to soften even before the Comey announcement. Um, and as I also said, she takes full responsibility for her loss. But I'm wondering, just looking at all this stuff in toto, the Russian interference, the media's treatment of Trump, the Bernie factor, the misogyny, and, and, and really even the Comey letter, from an academic standpoint, how do you see all that now? Uh, in, in, you know, how do you see her loss now in light of all that? I haven't seen anything that, that changes my mind about the, the role of the fundamentals versus uh, campaign effects. Um, Tell us quickly what you mean by fundamentals, if you would. Fundamentals are basically the, you know, and this is, fundamentals are, you, you look at the, the party identification breakdown in the states, you look at demographic change in the states, you look at economic uh, fortunes within the states, and a few other things, the state of, of, of war, if there's a war going on, um, and maybe one or two other big issues, um, and that 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 almost determines the outcome. I mean, there's some obviously some some error involved okay. in, the, in a prediction like that. But none of it has anything to do with who the candidate is 
and um, and how they campaign. And this this gets misrepresented a lot by people like Nate Silver, who says that the fundamentals models are just about economics. They're not. Economics is like the third item on the list. Um, and so what what I need to see, and I just I haven't expected to see anything that's going to change my mind because the data I need to see probably won't be available until after 2020. Mm. And that is what in in Wisconsin and Michigan in particular, what has the population changed looked like? You're talking about census data then, right? Census data, yeah. yeah. And I'm going to make a prediction now that I'm not going to be held to account for, so it's easy for me to make, mm. which is that you're going to see the population of those two states have gotten much smaller and much older and much whiter. Mm. Okay. Um, so anyway, so that said, I don't think sh- I think she's mostly wrong in her assessment of why the election turned out the way they did that it did. And I also think her critics are mostly wrong. I mean, this is one of those. I think everybody's wrong, except for the fact that I do think misogyny had a big role to play um, in this. And, and, and it's in a particular way. I think that, you know, the sort of white male resentment has been stewing for the last eight years, right? They put aside their sort of racism in 2008 because the economy was so bad and they voted for a black man. And people have gone out and collected anecdotes where like, they go door to door and they're canvassing and they knock on the door, somebody opens it and they say, can I ask you who you're voting for? And they turn in and say, who are we voting for this year? And then the voice comes from from someone in the house saying, we're voting for the N-word, which I won't say. Right. Right. So there are people who who are just perfectly comfortable using using that kind of using that kind of language who voted for Barack Obama. Anyway, well, guess what? That resentment built up and built up and built up and was directed at the first woman to have a major party nomination. Well, she did lose among white women. And in fact, in her interview in NPR, she did say that that she felt that that had something to do with white women actually being deferential to their husbands, like you saying. Yeah, that's one. And it's, it's, it's a Tammy Wynette stand by your man comment coming home to roost. Yeah. And there's there's I mean, she made enemies of Republican women a long time ago, and she made enemies of a certain sort of con- uh, con- culturally conservative white woman when she was first lady and said, I didn't come to the White House to bake cookies. Yes. When she didn't give out her cookie recipe. And then she did give out a cookie recipe and it was like a vegan cookie. It was something. It was the back of the Toll House cookie pack. Or Toll House, uh, <laughs> Which is a delicious recipe. It really is. Um, There's nothing wrong a, with Toll House cookies. For me. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so yeah, I think, I think, um, and as far as this sort of um, pie in the sky, uh, this proposal that, that she talks about, you know, for universal basic income, that she was thinking of it and she couldn't make the numbers work, so she didn't uh, put it on the campaign. And that she maybe regrets that now. Maybe she should have done something. I see this a different way because I don't think it would have helped her win the election because I don't think those kinds of things do help you win and lose elections. But what it would have done, I mean, it's it's pandering. And we don't want the public to be set up to expect a set of policies that cannot work and cannot be passed. And I'm not saying universal basic income. But wouldn't it it have inspired people? Wouldn't it have galvanized people? Wouldn't it have gotten people to the polls that didn't show up? I, no, I, I think, think so. it was a lost opportunity. I, I, I well, actually, so. I don't know. I think, a, 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 pardon the expression, an academic argument could be made that that's precisely what Trump did. But uh, anyway, I think we should probably just leave it there because this is a conversation that uh, we can take up next week for sure. We're going to be back next week. And, so. and we're on the same team. And we're all on the same team. We're all wearing D's next to our names. All right, you guys, that'll do it for this week's show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to be up on all of our goings on here at the show, please head over to thinkoutsidethebeltway.com and subscribe. If you listen on Apple 
Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Do give us a rating. That really helps. Think Outside the Beltway is a production of Get Creative, Inc. I'm Stephen Cox. They are Chad Levinson and David Gershwin, and this podcast kills fascists. Isn't it pretty to think so? After all, tomorrow is another day. Indeed it is, and next week is another week, and we'll see you then. Talk to you guys next time. Bye. See you next time.